0: (laughs) Uh, We are as you know studying the book of Joshua and in today's lesson we finally get the part that you learned in in, uh, Sunday school. (laughs) Joshua fought the battle of Jericho right and so in chapter 6 today we see that uh, Israel be, be victorious and take the city of Jericho the famous battle but Their overconfidence and their greed will be brought out in chapter 7. And it'll have to be dealt with very much like the overconfidence and greed of Ralph (laughs) Cramden. All right, if you have your uh, Bible or your electronic device, turn to Joshua chapter 6. And, you know, in... I was reading one commentary written by James Montgomery Boyce and he said the most exciting lecture he ever heard was by a professor in military science. And he said the guy was talking about the most brilliant strategist that he'd ever studied uh, who employed a rapid strike into the heart of the enemy's territory and divided their forces and then attacked one on the south and then after he won that attacked the northern part and defeated them both and his, uh, went about with speed and surprise and went on and on about him. Boyce assumed that he was talking about uh, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, but no, he was talking about Joshua. <laughs> Joshua, and that's exactly what Joshua... Let's look at... Uh, and By the way, also, uh, we found out that in World War I, General Allenby, you know, he conquered the Middle East, uh, fighting against the Ottoman Empire in World War I, and he used the exact same strategy as Joshua. He studied it. He entered across the Jordan River, right across from Jericho, and drove up the east-west road into the central highlands, and then went to the highway that goes north and south through the middle of Israel. And he divided the Ottoman's forces and fought the southern boundary, I mean the southern forces, won that and then went north and, and defeated them in the north. Exactly like Joshua did. And so I think we have a map somewhere. There we go. Just to give you an idea. Uh, you can see uh, the bigger, uh, the yellow map over here where Jericho is right above the Dead Sea and that's, that's where uh, Joshua is going to cross, and after he takes Jericho, then he's going to go due west uh, towards Jerusalem. Yeah, you can see it right here. They camp at Abel Shittim, if you remember. You can't remember, can't forget that name, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they move up to the Jordan River and camp there for uh, about a week, and the spies go in and all that. And then in today's lesson last week actually they crossed the river and camped at gilgal which is up there right outside of jericho they they put their camp there and that would be the kind of their base of operations where they would leave the women and children while they went to go fight from that point on uh, but jericho uh, they got to take it first because that's right on the highway that goes into the central highlands and so they got they can't have uh, an enemy force behind them when they go in, so they got to take Jericho first. And it's a fortified city with about a 30-foot wall. Uh, you can go there today, and you can see the remains of the ancient city and the foundation of the wall that was around it. It's it's still there, so um, plenty of uh, archaeological information to back up everything that happens in this story that we're going to look at today. Okay. Um, so uh, Joshua is going to take Jericho then he's going to go uh, and just take one city after another as he moves up into the central highlands on that road or that highway uh, that goes um, up there and the problem is in taking Jericho if you're thinking I'm thinking he's meeting with all his people saying how are we going to do this we've never done this before have uh, you got any idea? And they're thinking, well, do we need to build some towers or some battering rims? Or, you know, what's our strategy here? And then last week we saw that the angel of the Lord, which is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, appears to them and gives them the strategy. Okay, you've got no siege towers. You're not going to need it. you got no battering rims. You're not going to need it. No catapults. You won't need them. All you need will be your flint knives and and swords you know just a, and how is it going to happen and the New Testament author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11:30, 30 by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days so that's how God's going to do it God's going to fight the battle God's going to do the miracle God's going to give it to them but he is going to use Israel to accomplish his task and they must show the faith to about obey Him and these bizarre, strange, odd instructions that He's going to give them. And they're so strange, it's so weird, that nobody would do this unless they totally believed in the Lord God. You wouldn't go out there and march around an enemy city like that and then in total silence and do nothing for seven days in a row and then at the end of the seven days everybody shout. You would no, nobody would do that unless they totally bought in to the Lord God of Israel and believed in Him. So as the author of Hebrews says, it happened by their faith. You know, we normally think, you know, God did it, but God chose to use them in accomplishing this awesome miracle. And guess what? He still works that way today. God has chosen to bless us by working through our faith. And so God has given us, just like He gave the Israelites at Jericho, a faith-based directive. We have commands from the Lord uh, to spread the gospel. It's a faith-based directive. Go there and go all over the world and spread the gospel, tell them the good news, disciples, you know, the whole deal. Uh, and how are we going to do that? By faith, right? That's the only way it's going to be accomplished. So there, it's like a participation agreement. God says, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to use you to do it, and you're going to have to exercise faith to accomplish it. You're going to have to completely buy into it. And how do we know that they had faith? Because they obeyed, what he said, and did a task that no other explanation (laughs) would suffice. Nobody else would do exactly what they did. So that's what you're going to see in the story today. Uh, God's unique, strange, you know, strategy. Uh, And have you noticed as you go through the Bible, most of the stories are like that. Uh, Not only Jericho, but how about Noah's Ark? I mean, he chose to preserve a remnant to start over, and and gave him a hundred years to preach to the people, and they built this weird barge, you know, and had the, you know, what a wild story. And then, how about Gideon in the book of Judges? Gideon has ten thousand soldiers, and God says that's too many. Whittle them down. That's still too many. We'll end up with three hundred soldiers. Who would do that? It's the most strange and bizarre strategy ever. And so God works in the most unique ways. And you know what? Uh, According to the world that we live in, the most unique thing that God ever did, the wildest and weirdest and, and illogical thing that God did, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of His own Son. Who would do that? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 he said we preach Christ crucified. This message goes to everybody and when the Greeks hear it they say you know the Greeks were big on logic right when the Greek hears it they said that's the most illogical thing I've ever heard of god becomes a man why would he stoop like that the god we be- no way god becomes a man and then god dies That's totally illogical. It makes absolutely no sense. And to the Jew he says it was a stumbling block to their pride because they thought they could accomplish it by their own merit. They could keep the law perfectly and be good enough to go to heaven. So their pride kept them away. So it was a stumbling block. They tripped over it and fell so to speak. And then the author Paul explains the problem that the wisdom of God is completely foreign to the human race. They just don't get it the way God works. He's completely unique and completely in a way that it can only be Him. It's not like any man would do it. All the miracles and everything that's accomplished and most of all, our salvation through Jesus Christ is totally Unique and not like anything that men would ever think of or do. And that makes Christianity totally unique. And you know, we say that there's only one way. And that's, that's exactly why. Because men have devised hundreds of different religions. All of them are based around our performance. They all are man-centered. What I can accomplish, what I can do, what I can obey. Who I am, my performance. Only in Christianity is it about what God has done by sending His Son in the world. He took the initiative and He has accomplished what we could not do for ourselves. Totally unique. And all these miracles that He does uh, in the book of Joshua are totally unique as well. So, uh, the captain of the Lord, uh, last week we saw in Joshua 5, came and appeared to Joshua and gave him the strategy uh, that, we'll, that we read about. Look at um, Joshua 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. So they saw him cross that river and they went, uh-oh. <laughs> we thought it might take them a while to cross that thing because it was in the flood stage. We thought we had a few months. Then they crossed it and they shut the the city up. And it's interesting when you go look at the The actual wall part of the city was only about nine acres. It's really small, and you look at it and you go, well, there must have not been many people. But they had, you know, thousands of people living outside the wall, you know, uh, farming and what have you. And then they would come, when when an invader would come, they would come and pack into the inside of the walls for protection. And so... Uh, it was uh, well fortified and there were a lot of soldiers there to defend it. But the Lord says, I have given Jericho into your hand along with its king and all of its warriors. I'm going to do it. you got to trust Me, but I'm going to do it. If they don't trust Him, what will happen? Remember the, le- the uh, lesson they learned at Kadesh Barnea? Numbers 13, we talked about this in the first lesson. Uh, The first generation that came out of Egypt, after they left Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, God said, go, I'm going to lead you to Kadesh Barnea, which is the southern boundary. And then I want you to go into the land and take it. And what what'd they do? Remember? We can't. We can't do it. Those guys in there are too big. There's too many of them we've got better weapons. So what did they lack? Faith. Faith. They lacked the faith to go in. And so basically, you know, God's saying, I'm going to do this, but don't be like your parents. I want you to believe me and I'm going to give you a a faith-based directive that you would never dream up, that nobody else would do it this way. And nobody would do it unless they totally believed in the Lord God. Here it is. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once, and you shall do this for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns. These are the jubilee uh, horns that they would have at the tabernacle to summon people to the presence of the Lord. So basically they blow these everybody would know to come to the tabernacle or later the temple because the Lord was calling them. Alright? So these ram's horns, they would blow them. <laughs> then on the seventh day, so they're going to do that once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times and the priest shall blow the trumpets And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horns on the seventh day, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, every man straight ahead. So that's that's the strategy. (laughs) And it's meant to be strange and odd and not anything that any brilliant military strategist would ever do. Because it's a faith-based directive. If you believe me, you'll do this, and it will happen. Right? So, God gives them the direction, and then verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, All right, let's do it boys. Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Now you go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the ark of the the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Now here's something interesting in verse 10. Joshua commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor let your voice be heard at all nor let a word proceed out of your mouth. Now we don't know exactly how many people there were but there was several hundred thousand how difficult would it be to tell several hundred thousand people, don't say a word. <laughs> you know, you play that game with children, you know, let's play the quiet game and it never lasts more than about ten seconds, right? <laughs> so the very idea, I mean, you'd have, again, you have to really buy in to what, to what God had said. This took a strong faith to agree to be completely quiet while they walked all around the deal. I mean, you want to go, I wonder why we're doing this. Can you figure this out? They had to be completely quiet. Because God wanted this to be about His directive and not about anything else. Then, when you finish the seven times and they blow the horn, and I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. This is very repetitious. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. They went out and did it again. They did this seven, uh, six days in a row. Uh, and then when you get to 15, verse 15, it came about on the seventh day. finally, Because you imagine if you're inside of the city of Jericho, what are you thinking? When are they going to, yeah, when are they going to attack? What is going on out there? You know, this is the weirdest thing we've ever seen. There must be some meaning to this. So they they just built up the suspense, built up the drama day after day after day, not knowing what was going to happen. So finally on the seventh day it came about on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day marched around the city in the same manner seven times only on that day they marched around the city seven times and it came about at the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets Joshua said to the people shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city shall be under the band. So he stops right there the author does before he goes before they actually invade, where he tells the part about invasion, because verse 17 and uh, through nineteen is a very important part of the story and what will happen in the next chapter. And it's this is the directions for the ban, the ban on looting. No looting allowed. Instead, when you find any of value gold or silver or bronze or anything of value you're to give it to the priests to put in the treasury of the Lord so I think the idea here is that let's build up the Lord's treasury first it's very much like you know when when Moses gave the law of giving he said you're going to take a tenth you know when you have a field you're going to take the tenth of the crop first and give it to the Lord and so I think that's what's going on here also. We're going to build up the Lord's treasury first. And uh, so he puts a ban on looting in the city of Jericho. Uh, Everything in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, keep yourselves from things under the ban. You know, don't loot. Lest you covet, desire, lust after them, and take some of the things under the ban because the, they belong to the Lord. So you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. So if they do do that, there's going to be severe consequences. It's going to bring a curse on the camp, on the army of Israel. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when, they, when he yelled shout, and guess what happened? <laughs> yeah. When the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead. Uh, and I, I'm wondering you know, how did that wall fall down? And and some of the liberal theologians I read, just to find out what the other side is thinking, said, well, every 60 to 70 years they have an earthquake in that area. (laughs) And this was well planned to coincide with one of those earthquakes. And it's very likely, from studying the archaeological impressions, that the foundation of the wall was faulty to begin with. (laughs) What are are they doing? They're trying to find a naturalistic reason for this wall. I mean, the archaeologist said, yeah, there was a wall here and it's gone. So they're trying to find a naturalistic reason for this phenomena, right? But if you believe, that's the difference. If you believe, then you know that the Lord destroyed the wall. The battle is the Lord's. God said, I will give it to you. But they participated in the miracle by believing God and following His instructions and shouting and blowing the horns and the the whole ball of wax. So that when they watch this and see it happen, can you imagine how it just blew their mind and built their faith and was a life changing experience. It was an incredible blessing upon Israel because they had a very formidable task to to defeat all the Canaanites. They were outnumbered you know i don 't know how much you know hundred to one or something, and they didn 't have the the uh, all the instruments of destruction they're going to be fighting battles against chariots you know they 'll just churn people up and and they need the faith that God is going to give to them, so you can see the the uh, that 's an artist' rendering of what actually happened. The wall's coming down, and uh, the last time I taught this, they said, "Did the wall fall inward or outward?" <laughs> that's critical. People can always find a way I think I know everything, they always find a way to stop me, you know. <laughs> And so my answer is, it fell. It didn't fall inward, outward, it fell down. <laughs> <Straight> down. <laughs> oh, God. And so, the wall fall, fell down, flat, and every man went straight ahead and they took the city. And look at verse 21. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, everything in there they wiped out. Just like Moses had commanded them, and now just like Joshua had commanded them, all by the command of the Lord. Let's talk for a second about the ethics of that. Because I know this is very bothersome to some people. And uh, so let's try to explain, you know, why God would give such a fierce command to them to do something It seems like it's bloodthirsty or it's a little too severe. It's unnecessary. Well, let's kind of go through the reasons given by Moses when he initially told them that. First of all, we find in Leviticus 18... Moses goes through all the sins of the Canaanites in Leviticus 8, 18, and says, whatever you do, don't practice the ways of the Canaanites. And then he goes through, don't do this, 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 and this. And they're the most heinous things you can imagine. I mean, they had sex with every relative. <laughs> they had sex with every kind of animal. Bestiality, they were pedophiles, they were homosexuals, I mean, just, you know, transgender, everything you can think of, they were. And to finish it off, he said, and if that doesn't bother you, they sacrificed infants to the idols. And so, A, the ethics of it, first of all, they had it coming. They had it coming. And God is the righteous judge who decides those things. You know, the commands to the uh, Christians in the New Testament, the uh, love your enemies and don't take revenge and, and whatnot, those are made to individuals. Okay? And we don't set ourselves up as judges over people. Uh, we're not supposed to anyway. But God is the righteous judge. And God decides who is saved and who isn't. Who deserves to die and who doesn't, etc., etc. God judges righteously. So that's the first thing. Second is, Uh, The New Testament doctrine of love, as I said, is directed to us as individuals, has nothing to do with God's judgment. That has to do with the Christian life. You know, you forgive each other, etc. But that doesn't have anything to do with God's final judgment. Two different things. Thirdly, if anyone had believed in God and repented, if any of these Jericho, any of these people in Jericho, they had heard all the stories. Remember the story of Rahab? She made it clear. Everybody in this city has heard everything that's happened. They know that God brought you out of slavery. They know that He parted the Sea. Rec- they know all. They know that there's a God in Israel. And yet, they will not believe and they will not repent. They choose not to. What examples do we have of people that did and so God forgave? Rahab, and then uh, in the coming chapters, the Gibeonites, four whole cities of people, believe in the God of Israel and repent and join Israel, become proselytes. And God forgives them and they are saved. Okay? So anybody that's willing to confess their sin and repent and believe in God, God says, come on. Fourthly, he fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Remember he told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. So the judgment against the Canaanites to dispossess them, they had it coming. And then also to fulfill his promise to give it to Abraham's descendants. And then fifthly, he said, you've got to take them all out because I'm telling you for sure if you leave them there, they will pollute you. They will bring you down to their level and they will ruin Israel. Pollution. Moral, spiritual pollution. Can't have it. And so that's the ethics of it. And uh, frankly, after I read Leviticus uh, 18, that's enough for me. (laughs) Wipe them out. Leave no one, (laughs) not even a trace of their existence as far as I'm concerned. All right. Utterly destroyed everything. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, "Go to the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to this." They went and got Rahab, and all of her family is saved. And we find out later that they've become proselytes, and she ends up marrying Salmon, and they have Boaz, who marries Ruth and. You find them in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab. So is God gracious and merciful? Absolutely. But it just requires your belief and repentance. So they bring them out, and then they burn the city with fire. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord, the tabernacle. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household, they were all spared, and they live in the midst of Israel to this day. And if Joshua was writing this, that would be over seven years later. Then Joshua made them take an oath at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. So he puts a, a God-given curse on the city. No one will ever fortify this city again. And we find, and if they do, he says, uh, they'll lose their son, the youngest son, if they try to put up a wall and gates there in verse 26. And guess what? In 1 Kings 16, verse 34, a guy named Hiel or Heel tried to refortify the city. Can you guess what happened? It wasn't good. It wasn't good. <laughs> Both of his sons. Both of his sons were killed. Lost two sons because of that in 870 B.C. So that was about um, 500 years later. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. So this incredible victory and the word went out and everybody is even more afraid of Israel than before. So everything is awesome. Everything is great. It can't get any better than this. We're so fired up. God's going to give us all the land. We're going to win every battle. We can't lose. This is a great victory, an easy victory. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, throughout the Bible, a lot of chapters... Just when you're on a spiritual high, a lot of chapters begin with, but. And you know what follows is not going to be good. So verse uh, chapter 7, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now this is while one guy, one family really, took the gold and silver and stuff, but God accounted it against the whole people. So in a sense, they were responsible to hold that guy accountable. Everybody's responsible for each other in, in this. Uh, to hold him accountable. And plus I think God wants to stop and really get the attention of the rest of Israel. Because you know in all of us there's a little bit of greed. Is it just me? (laughs) No. I know as a fact there's a little greed in all of us and a whole lot of greed in some of us. Uh, and if they see this guy got away with that, every town from then on is going to be looted, right? So God's going to get their attention real hard and fast right here. Not just Aiken, but for the whole nation is going to get a wake-up call. And here it is. They're totally overconfidence. Oh man, we got this made. They go up to the next town of Ai. You can see it's just right up the road, uh, headed towards Bethel. And after that, uh, they're going to keep going to Gibeon. That's just south of there. Uh, But they get to Ai and they go, oh, this is a much smaller town. This is not nearly as fortified as Jericho. this would be a piece of cake. So the spies come back and say, you don't even need hardly anybody. Just... Give me got 2,000 guys. I'll go up and take this easy. So they went up to Ai with, two, with 3,000 men. And it doesn't give you any details, but they got into a fight and they ran back. We got whipped. <laughs> they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became his water. Suddenly, all their self-confidence is gone. What happened? And Joshua goes before the Lord in prayer. And this is classic. Moses did some of this. Everybody in the Bible does some of this. David is famous for this in the Psalms. Lord, why did you ever raise me up if you were going to do this to me? This is not fair. You know. Why did we ever come into this land if, you, if we were going to be defeated? And so Joshua says, O oh lasso, oh Lord, why did you ever bring this people, us in here to destroy us? If only we had been able to dwell on the east side of the river. I mean, he's already given up. What can I say now since Israel has turned their back and run before their enemies? For the Canaanites, they whipped us So the Lord says to Joshua, Get up, you dummy. (laughs) Why is it that you're down on your face and you've given up already? This has happened because Israel has sinned. It's just that simple. So get up, hold the people accountable, find out who did it, and get back in the saddle. Israel has transgressed. And therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs and run, for they have become accursed. He's basically saying, God's saying, look what happens when you're separated from Me. And you know what separates us from God? Sin. And God's saying, if, if you want Me to be with you, you've got to clean this mess up. And so He says, verse 13, Rise up, consecrate the people, and say to the people, there's, there's loot in the camp somewhere. And here's what we're going to do. You know what lots are? They throw lots. Well, they've actually found a lot of these things uh, in archaeology, in the ruins. And they're little stones, flat stones, and they would write names on them. And then they would draw out. And they believed in the sovereignty of God and this type of priestly drawing. And so they start off with the 12 tribes of Israel, put, uh, uh, each tribes and they pull it out and it's Judah. Now all the people are standing and watching this. So now he's whittled it down to one twelfth, right? Twelve tribes. And then all the clans of the tribe of Judah. And they pick that clan out. And so now you've whittled it way down. And then the families of each one of those. Now everybody's holding their breath, and it's just slowly coming in on Achan. And he's standing there going, "Uh uh-oh, now. (laughs) And here's the sad part of this. We know from all the stories in Scripture, if he'd have stepped up in the very beginning and confessed his sin and repented, he would have been forgiven. There might have been some consequences, but he would have been forgiven. But he doesn't. He just sits back and waits until they pull that last lot out of there and it says, Achan. I mean, I want to know if there had been a mistake and they pulled somebody else's name, what would he have done and go, whew, <laughs> just let that guy get killed? No. So it comes out, and, and when he's chosen... Joshua says, okay, it's time for you to fess up. You're you're caught. We know you did it. And so Achan finally, verse 20 says, you got me. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Here's the definition of greed. and This is the definition of temptation. Falling to temptation. I saw the gold and the silver. You yeah, know, interesting thing, uh, years ago our grandkids were about seven and nine years old or eight and ten, something like that, and we were in the uh, mountains of North Carolina in, in an area that had uh, some old silver and gold mines, and they had this cool thing where they, you could go in there and pan for gold and silver and, and what have you, and they give you a big old thing of uh, soil, and, you, and they had this stream running through there in a pan, and it would sift out. And they, would, they had it salted with all kinds of real shiny rocks. So the kids, you know, just had a ball. And when they started coming up with these glittery rocks, that they were going, the little big kids, gold. <laughs> <laughs> and they became more animated and put more in there and they were just like 90 to nothing looking for this gold. And I went, my gosh. Do we need any more evidence of the sin nature of man <laughs> The little children? You know, see the gold and they go crazy. So he says, I saw it among the spoil and I had to have it. I've been dreaming of this. It was all my dreams come true. I've always thought if I just had all that gold and silver... I could be rich and powerful and have everything I've ever wanted. I coveted them. Desire overwhelmed him. And then he took action. I took them. Behold, they were concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver in it. So he buried everything in his tent. That tells you obviously his family knows about it too. Which is important because And the rest of the story, they take Achan and his family down and put them in a depression. And everybody gathers around and they stone them to death. And then they burn the remains. Pretty severe. Pretty severe. I I granted. But again, this is the righteous judgment of God. And in God's economy, he's saying, I've got to get these people's attention early. Or this is just going to get out of control. Because everybody's greedy. If they they get away with it, or just a rap on the knuckles, it's going to corrupt Israel. And we can't have that. And so, AI, next week we'll see in the battle of AI, now God's with them and they take the city easily. Soon as God's back with them, soon as they sin has been forgiven and they're back in fellowship and God is with them, more faith based directives, everything's gonna be great. So when you think about, as we said, that when you read these stories and some people I read said, you know, there's really two gods in the Bible. There's an Old Testament God of wrath and anger and vengeance. Then there's a New Testament God of love and grace and mercy. Guess where all of our doctrine on hell and judgment come, comes from? Old Testament or new? It's in the new. Jesus talked a lot about hell, and almost all the doctrine comes from the Gospels of Jesus' teaching. So is the wrath of God, is the judgment of God just in the Old Testament? No. There's more actually, and it's more severe because it's on an an eternal basis in the New Testament. It's the same God. The one God who exercises His right of righteous judgment but if, because he has to be, his, in his nature, 100% just. There must be justice. But at the same time, he's also the God of 100% grace and mercy. Now, how do you have the same two, both of those together? They seem mutually exclusive. There's only one act and one man that can bring both of those together. And that's Jesus Christ on the cross. By the one act of Christ on the cross, justice comes. All sins are paid for, atoned for. And by the one act, judgment comes through the cross. And by the one act, the grace and mercy of God in forgiving us comes because everything is atoned for by the blood of Christ. And we enter the kingdom of God totally forgiven and in God's eyes righteous a righteousness that is not of our own but it is a gift of God and that's the grace of God let me close in prayer Lord thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories they're powerful, they're awesome they make us come to grips with who you are Lord not only in your grace and mercy and love but also in your justice And so we praise you, God, and we thank you for the mercy and grace you've shown us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs)